SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 12 with guest Lewis Davidson. Guest this evening is Lewis Davidson. Lewis has been designing and implementing databases for 12 years. Currently, he's the Senior Database Administrator and Architect for Compass Technology in Nashville, Tennessee, and is a Microsoft SQL Server MVP. He's worked with PASS, the Professional Association of SQL Server, for the past four years with their special interest groups, and has written and contributed to several books, including the forthcoming Pro SQL Server 2005 Database Design and Configuration from APRESS. So welcome, Lewis. Thank you. So what I might do first up, again, as usual, is get you to just spend a few minutes and describe how, how you come to be involved with databases and in particular with SQL Server. What was a long, strange trap? Um, uh, for, is for most people, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah about, about 12 years ago, I got this. I was in college and taking a database design class, not doing very well in it. Truthfully, but they they had this, uh, a, he, the professor had a job opportunity and said anybody want this job opportunity? I was the only guy that raised their hand. And really? So I, I usually, took, usually in classes, people are so keen to do that. So yeah, the pay was pretty bad, but okay. it was better than what I was making. The like Wendy's mm-hmm. or something, flipping yeah. burgers. I was managing people flipping burgers, which is even worse. <laughs> but um. It was it was this product called ACS Fourth Dimension on, on a Macintosh even, and it was horrible. I, I took over some really bad work and I made it really really worse. Um, <laughs> these really horrible wide tables, and just just terrible. And so I finally ended up leaving leaving that job and got a job as an LAN administrator, working with the Church of God International headquarters, and I was even worse at that. I had to serve these like little old ladies who. <laughs> knew nothing about computers other than that they had the best ones because they were married to the people who, who were running the place. I don't have a tremendous lot of patience, so I, I almost lost that job several times until we came up to this project where they wanted to get rid of this mainframe system that was costing them like $15,000 a month, which was a tremendous amount of money for us at the time. Yeah. So we suggested, me and this other guy suggested we downsize the computer and use this product called SQL Server. So we built this product using SQL Server 1 point something and then ended up on 4.21, which was, it was incredible. We had 50 megabytes of disk space, and um, which <laughs> my cell phone has more yeah. than that. And I remember <laughs> writing uh, hundreds of store procedures and triggers for this. And what was really nice was I had a, the guy who I was working for was really into normalization and doing things right. So he taught me a lot of really great practices. When I left that job, I went to another job with another guy who was really into doing things right. So I've, I've had this this 
experience of of not of learning through other people. And I've just the only thing I've really done since then professionally is SQL Server. That's great. And so your current involvement with SQL Server is what sort of things? Um, I design so Compass I, Technology. Yeah. Right. We do things like um, a lot of customer relationship management type work. We use mm-hmm. the product CRM. We, we're building a data warehouse to to attach to the product. Hopefully, I can say that. <laughs> yeah. I um, had recently designed a data warehouse for um, a, a system that one of our clients uses. And so I've, I've started getting into data warehousing. But for the most part, all I've done is, is, is designed relational databases and written the code yeah. for them. Just, just That's good. The same thing for 12 I, years, and I love it. That's great. And I, and I see you're very active in community things. And, uh, in fact, we'll talk about uh, pass a bit later, but I must admit I also see you on news groups and things a lot a lot of the time as well. Yeah, I love the news groups. It's, it's, you can, you'll probably be able to tell by the end of this interview that I'm not the best speaker. And I'm not. It's not that I'm completely antisocial, but news groups are a great place to to interact with people and, and meet people and help people. But I have a backspace key that I can <laughs> use. <laughs> Correct. Use when it comes right down to it. Well, listen. The thing that we were going to talk about in the show is really your top ten design practices or issues, or the the things that you see people make the biggest mistakes uh, in. So maybe if we start with uh, number 10, what's your, what's your number 10? My number 10 is not listening to me. <laughs> um, well, a co-worker made me say that, but w- what, I really mean, well, what I really mean by that is, is, is you hire people, people in, in big companies tend to use people in strange ways. You've got a person who can design a database you'll have them write scripts. You have a person who can design a UI, you'll have them building something else. And so mm. that was that was really the gist, was getting the right people to do the right things. Because someone who's designing a, a user interface isn't going to think about how to design the database. Because, you know, why would they? They want to they yeah. make the screen look as, as good as possible. Actually, how how do you? That's that really interests me actually as well because I, I notice with um, a, a lot of the new products that Microsoft's working on at the moment, like the new Expression series and so on, and products like Sparkle and so on. The the sort of thing they're doing is is uh, getting someone who is a basically a user interface designer and giving them tools to go in and design the interface for the application, and then say, well. Okay, we're going to use that basically as the user interface, and then we're going to build everything behind that from that point on. Do you do you think that may tend to end up with designs that are, oh, I suppose suboptimal? <laughs> I suppose it might be a nice way to say it. Well, this is dangerous dangerous ground for me because we're we're building with CRM right now, their mm-hmm. CRM product, and it does exactly that. The screen. Basically, it's like one entity equals one screen, from what I can gather. I, I've been doing the data warehouse parts, but and then it builds a table, set of tables, and does all the work in the background. And the database <laughs> is can be 
like you say, suboptimal. Yeah. I, th- I think the one that sort of troubles me is I know just a lot of consulting work I've done, uh, the, the customers I find the hardest to deal with are the ones that tell you h- how to do the thing rather than what they need. Um, and invariably they come up with a way of doing it that is uh, not good <laughs> and because they, they just don't know what's possible. Absolutely. Hmm. That really is exactly what I was talking about. Hmm. You hire someone who does... You, you hire a consultant to design something and build something for you and you tell them how to do it. And like you say, it always ends up in not exactly what it should be. Yeah. I had a, an old boss that used to describe it as uh, going out and buying a dog and then standing at the gate barking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that same sort of thing. So what's number nine then? Leaving data integrity to external programs. The problem there being that SQL Server does a great job protecting your data. Uniqueness, check constraints, foreign keys, even triggers. When you, when you need to do something with it to protect the data, it, it has it all built in. Why use some external program to do that where you didn't have to do it in 15 different places? Even things like doing data um, loads from external clients, no one's going to, you know, you, you want to use DTS to use them. The um, mm. It's great having that just built into the to the tables so it automatically happens rather than having to rely on some external code it's isn't it's, it's not terrible if you're using only that one interface but you want to be able to trust that the data once it gets in the database is is correct so if you have all your keys and all your constraints on and you have them trusted you've checked them you had SQL server check to make sure they're true there's never any question whether the data is right or not yeah, in fact, I think one one of the discussions that always comes up with that is the the sort of thing like where to put constraints and uh, and and how detailed those constraints are. I, I know when we were at the past conference last year, in uh, again in Joe Selko's session, he was uh, arguing very strongly that uh, very detailed constraints. He was keen on clearly being at the database level, and uh, where other people in the room would would see them at being at some sort of business layer level and I, I think historically part of that's been because it's sometimes been awkward to change them at the database level uh, but that sort of thing now is pretty easy to change well it, it's awkward to change in some ways and it's also the, the error messages you get on mm. the greatest and I, I'm, I'm all for middle the middle tier the multi-tier 10 tier you know whatever whatever works best and scales best Hmm. But I wouldn't suggest, even if you're going to check it in the middle tier, I wouldn't suggest you not check it at the data level. Yeah. Because, like I said, once you trust the data, once it's in the database and it's trusted to be true, no process, no other process can accidentally mess up the data. Hmm. Yeah. I, th- I think that's one of the things, too, is that it, at least uh, if it's at the database level, it doesn't really matter what the clients are uh, that connects to the database. The, I, I suppose the, the difficulty is that if you do have a business layer, that, that's fine uh, and, and that's good. But again, if you're putting the constraints only at that layer, you've really got to enforce that 
every single client that could potentially connect never ever connects anyway but through that business layer and and that starts to get hard to do sometimes and SQL is such a great interface to put data in in tables and in the database why wouldn't you use that sometimes you're not going to build an entire program to load some data from a vendor you're going to use SQL Hmm. that's great what about number eight then? Poor naming standards. Uh-huh. I know this can turn into a, a religious debate about, <laughs> you know, should it be oh, yes. plural? Should it be singular? Yep. And and if you've ever seen me on the news groups, yes, I get involved in those arguments. But that's not that's not the the thing. The sin here is not naming it one way or another. It's doing mm-hmm. it many ways. Yeah. Doing naming things funny, not uh, not following a consistent pattern, so that your users can figure out what you're doing. Like uh, mm. you'll see, you'll see people who use circuit keys name some, name it table name ID, so you get the customer ID. Well, then in another table they might have an account and call it AID, and in another yeah. table you might have um, company identifier, mm-hmm. and people can't follow those things. And, and that's just one small example. You, if you have three name columns and you want to name one of them NM and one name and one first name and F name. Yeah. <clears throat> and then and people the, do. You're quite right. And so you have to go continually hunt down. What do they mean? What does this, what does this column mean? What is, the, what is an A3207 column? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Somebody knew. <laughs> And then in fact, everyone's quite. Yeah, one one of the things I find doing consulting work is that uh, I, I can't be really specific in enforcing any particular naming standard because, in the end, what I need to do is, uh, whenever I'm doing work at a site, is to make sure that the work I do looks like it was done by somebody else at the site, you know, and fits in with whatever they're doing. So I, I can't be sort of absolute about what you do, but. But again, even there, I try and make things as uh, consistent with what is already in use at the site as possible. Of course, there's our, our everyone's favorite prefixing the table, pre- prefixing an object name with table. Like table, every yeah. table is table customer, table yep. <laughs> invoice, column invoice number. Things like oh that. yeah, That's yeah. I must admit, I, I I really don't like seeing it in in front of table, but uh, column horrifies me. Yeah, I'm sure I've just offended ten people at least, but <laughs> I'm sure. Sorry. Right. <laughs> yeah, everyone has their style with that, but I must admit, uh, even amongst all the discussions we've been having on our own uh, email lists and things about uh, what are appropriate standards and so on, I must admit uh, I find very few that would be supportive of the idea of prefixing a table with table and and, uh, and so on. Although there's more support uh, for prefixing uh, a view with view because people say, I like to know that it's a view I'm working with. But uh, the opposite end of that, uh, I'm sure, uh, again, uh, picking on Joe Selko, but I mean, I'm sure he would argue that... Uh, uh, invariably, the other way round, he, he he wants to be able to interchangeably swap views and tables, and something that might be a table one day might become a view another day, and so on. So, he really doesn't like seeing a different naming convention for those. That's what I, I try to do, mm. because it is it is a lot nicer to be able to not 
make the user care. The, the thing I, the reason I didn't like the table, I was sort of picking on people who do that, yeah. but the reason I don't like that is because the user sees that. And they shouldn't have to go, when, when they see a list of tables that they're trying to write a report off of, they shouldn't have to go, is that a table? Ooh, that's a table. Hmm. They should just say, ooh, that's a customer. I need to look at the customer. Because this isn't like like Visual Basic, where you have these names that you you can't contextually figure out what they are. You're, you're never going never gonna to accidentally do select star from column. It's it's not even even natural to yeah. do that. When you, when you have a checkbox, you may not know what a checkbox is, so having a Hungarian checkbox something name, that makes mm. sense. I must admit, even there, um, I, I used to use Hungarian prefixes very widely when doing VB6 work many years ago. Uh, but I must admit, I've now in the uh, the .NET world, I tend to use uh, the, the more common sort of naming conventions there. And I must admit, I, after having done both for long periods, I, I've, I've got no desire to go back, actually. Um, I'm now very, very used to... Uh, not using Hungarian. In fact, I find it sort of odd now. But uh, um, but yeah, certainly still want to. Uh, periodically, I have to do VB6 work, and uh, and you know, <laughs> I, I do use it religiously as I used to. In fact, one of the things that intrigues me with naming standards, uh, the the only other thing that uh, I suppose while we're getting getting things off your chest, sort of thing, uh, one of the ones that annoys me actually is that that there isn't more prescriptive guidance uh, from Microsoft. In fact, I'd like to encourage them to do that. Um, I, I see a lot of people on the group say, look, it doesn't matter what you do as long as it's consistent. But uh, I, I think there's two problems with that. One is that consistently bad is still bad. And uh, and the other one is that, um, you know, I think that's a cop-out for new people. So, you know, if somebody's just coming along and saying, what should I do, saying to them, you know, do anything you like as long as it's consistent, I, th- I think is kind of a cop-out. I, I, I really do think uh, there, there should be more prescriptive guidance coming forward. I, I, I agree with you mm. in that respect. I mean, in, in my book, I do. I I got in a lot of trouble the first time I, I wrote because the, the reviewer said you gave I gave too much information about how to name things. I always follow a certain certain pattern of naming that I I found from the IDEF one X standard. Mm. Although I've sort of added my own flavor over the years to it. I don't like the yeah. way they do some things, but. <laughs> there, there is, there is levels of goodness and levels of badness. Well, I, I certainly intend to have a, a show once, sometime soon, just on naming, <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure that'll turn into a bit of a religious debate. But it, it's, it's certainly one I think would be be good to have. Um, so, what's number seven on your list? Uh, one size fits all. Ah. This is this is kind of where you where you overuse things like the property tables, entity attribute value type tables, or even XML. These are, you know, great tools, but some people take it just way too far. And instead of designing what they need, they say, oh, I can have this this table here, and, and if we come up with anything else, we'll just put it in this table. Probably the worst one-size-fits-all example, though, is the, is the one-domain table. Where you have, you have this identifier, you have the table name, and then you have the value. I just find that horrifying because it's so hard to join to, so hard to work with. 
I mean, people get this idea that you can have, if you have too many tables, it'll, it's going to be costly and harm, pro, harm um, performance. Mm-hmm. But it's in SQL Server. I mean, having more tables is not a bad thing. In fact, the more yeah. tables you have, the better because you can index them better, SQL, SQL deal with them better. Yeah, you're saying compared to collapsing them all into a table where you then end up with complex logic to pull things out of it. Yes. I was going to say, the theory, one of the theories is that you can have one editor that covers all domain tables. Well, that's, mm. you know, that's to me a very pretty weak argument. Well, I think in the end you end up with one editor that covers everything, but it's awful to use as well <laughs> because it, it, what you're trying to do is much more complicated than it would be. I'm, I'm a big fan of having domain tables for for domains. Mm. I know I, you can have... Some people like to have you know check-in strengths to cover domains. I like having domain tables as much as possible because if I, if I find additional information out about that domain, I can add it. Like, have you got a good example of, of uh, what you're thinking of there? Let's say a unit of measure. Yep. You might have a unit of measure that's ounce, pound, etc. Well, you could have just a column that had OZ and LB or whatever for the ounces and pounds. But then you might want to add conversion factors. You mm. might want to add, add alternate spellings. You know, this is the reporting value. Yeah. This is the description of what it is. And if you put it, if yeah. you put them all in one table, it's not. It's very hard to do that kind of additional information. Yeah. And if you're gonna, That's if great. you're not gonna be able to, to extend it, then I would say why not just use, AM check constraint, hmm. to check for the value. What about number six then? Columns with numbers. Ah. This one's, this one always just screams poor poor normalization, and a, a lack of understanding of, of relational programming. You're meaning as in address one, address two, address three. Not necessarily, mm-hmm. because there are a fixed number of those. I, I yep. mean, there is a bit of that that <laughs> you went right to the. Right to the, the, the difficult example. The difficult one. Well, I had to, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the easy example is I've got a, a customer and they've got payments. And I've got first payment, second payment, third payment. Mm. Right. And I've got maybe one for each month. And what happens if they give another payment? There's plenty of those examples. Or even yeah. sometimes I, I I put out this blog um, post looking for bad, for bad practices. So I wouldn't have to necessarily be talking about you know, people I've worked with or, or for in the past. Yeah. And one of the examples someone gave me was they had a table that had, like, complete rows with four or five columns named column one, column two, column three. <laughs> and, then, and then they had it repeated for the second value. Um, like, like, say you had address one, line one, address one, line two, address one, line three. And then yeah. had address line address two line one address two line three, yeah. So that's the that's the the heinous thing, because then someone will invariably say, "Can I have another one?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we can, but it's going to take about fifty hours programming because we got to mm-hmm. test it, we got to do regression testing, we got to do this, and we got to roll it out. Yeah. But yeah, you you are right. Things there are some cases where it's not a problem, and we're we're always going to do the address line one, address line yeah. two. 
I've I've actually you know you can I've built the table where it's address and I had a sub table to hold the address lines and mm. I've also done the address where you break it down into every last possible piece where you don't actually need address line one address line two yeah. <laughs> I, I did pick a complicated one there, and uh, and I think part of the reason I, I sort of picked that is it's one that I regularly see both ways. So, yeah. I've actually found if you're going to do that, just have an address column. Mm. There's no need to have an address line one, address line two. You have address where with a, a carriage return in there, or an XML. Having two fields makes it a problem. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> do, you, do you think this is a related... Though to the the fact that uh, SQL Server doesn't have arrays, yeah, no, it's, as it's columns. Just... <laughs> Many other databases we could have uh, an address column and we could say it's uh, you know varchar thirty five by four. But I've never thought that that would be that much better than having a related a, mm. la- a related row. Is it? Uh, I think it depends on the situation. I, I for all every situation where I see somebody go address line one, address line two, address line three, address line four, I, I just wish that was address line array, you know, of four, personally. <laughs> and uh, I must admit, having worked with databases like Progress and a number of others that have array column types, it seemed very, very natural in those sort of environments. But it's 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 one I've certainly learned to live without in SQL Server and without any particular problem. Yeah, what are, what are the rules that like like I said to this test having a single column that says address and you put all the data in there. One one of the rules of thumb I've tried to to force myself into is if I'm not going to ever deal with data inside SQL, I don't break it down into multiple columns. So mm. there, in that case, having the return is fine because if I'm never going to write a select statement and say, give me this part of the address. If I am, then you normalize it more. You know, you yeah. make a street number column. You make a street name mm-hmm. column. You make a, all the thousands of little pieces. That's right. Invariably a suburb, a state, a, yeah, all those sort of things. Even a subtype. That's great. Well, listen, that's probably a good point to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll look at your top five. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular... The first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Well, welcome back from the break. Uh, before we get into your top five, Lewis, uh, what I might do is just get you to anything you want to share with us. Tell, tell us about uh, where you live and uh, what your hobbies are or anything like that. Well, I live quite an exciting life. Um, I have three main things in my life. I have church and school, entertainment and gadgets and databases. When I say church and school, my, my, my wife's a, Valerie's a principal at a Christian, private Christian school. Mm. So, and I'm also a deacon at this, at this church. My daughter plays volleyball, is always in plays, and she's a scorekeeper for the basketball team. So, I spend a lot of time there at the school and stuff, deacons meetings and whatever. Great. I'm a gadget head. I love music and TV, old, new TV. 
American English. In fact, I even have memories of the old Paul Hogan show. Oh, uh, dear. Someday, dear. Hope, <laughs> someday I hope to find that on DVD someday, because that was a great show. <laughs> and his friend Strop. Yes, yes. Yes. I was going to say, so what's your latest, latest gadget? Um, pocket, my, my latest thing is my pocket PC phone. Mm-hmm. And I love this thing because I can sit there and work anywhere I'm at. I, I have it. I, I read blogs on it. I write stuff, play games, listen to music. It's a, um, it's a AudioVox. It's a Windows mobile based. I was listening to the uh, tablet PC podcast, the On the Go podcast, uh, uh, just in the last few days, and they were talking about at the Consumer Electronics Show. There was uh, the device that seemed to get a lot of attention. There was the new little dual core uh, CPC, which uh, is a machine that runs both tablet PC edition and it alternately can run Windows Mobile 5 and uh, has a f- shared folder you can copy between. It's got a 40-gig drive and a bright little... Uh, I think it was about a, a s- an 800 by 600 screen or something. Yeah, quite, quite but a little device and a, quite an amazing-looking thing. So I think there's some interesting new devices coming. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always... A- I have tons of these things, but I'm always usually one generation behind at least. Because yeah. it charges enormous amounts for the the current versions. But yeah. I, I bought a, a Palm pot, a Palm smartphone when they were just about to go out of and, and move on to the next version and I was hooked. Because mm. yeah. I can you know, I type on it and I write on it. It's it's a great it's a great toy as well as a great tool to get work done. Because hmm. then when I'm sitting in a basketball game and it's boring, I whip it out. I was going to say, you, you're supposed to be watching the basketball, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. I find myself working sometimes when I really shouldn't be. I should be listening to someone talk or... <laughs> there you go. And then I spend tons of time with databases. You know, yeah. it's my it's it's my job, right, but it's also my hobby. Yeah. Um, Look, I, I think for most of the MVPs, uh, it, it would have to be. Uh, the the amount of time they spend on it and community things and so on it's uh, it it would be hard to imagine it not being just you know it, it's, it has to be a passion for them to spend yeah, I know the I hear, time they do I hear a lot of these people talking and they do they do more than I do and yeah. I feel like I'm always doing this stuff <laughs> they're like oh I'm traveling here I'm traveling here I'm talking here I'm speaking here and I'm like wow also, listen, uh, we might then head on to your top five. So w- what's number five working our way down? Designing as you go. This one, to me, is probably the most obvious, but it's so common. The, f- the funny thing is, is, is in most industries, you would never do this. If you're going to build a house, you don't call a contractor and say, I want to build a house, and they start pouring the foundation, and then there's another guy sitting there, and what kind of what style of house do you want? You know sit down, you draw the plans, you know what size you want the house, they, they, they build a bunch of plans, say, is this what you want? And yes, and then you, you go build it. And, you know, they, they tweak it a little here and there because not everything's right when you first do it. You don't just go start hacking at it. And I'm not the kind, I, I don't believe you should, like, design everything and have this perfect design and, and never expect to change it. I'm, I, I understand the waterfall thing is was never perfect. But it, it's like too many people have taken this so far that they're not, they're not thinking ahead. So you get to this point where you're just trying to design something and you realize, oh, no, I forgot that. And now I've got to redesign this 
thing here, and you go, well, I could redesign that. Or I could just slap something else in there. Really, the, where the problem occurred there is where you say, hey, I could redesign it properly, but I won't, because it's just... Is that because it's too hard to change? It's kind of like... I, I have this problem myself, in that once I've done something, I become sort of enamored with it, and I don't mm. want to change it. Like, if, if I built a screen that's all pretty, and I built a report already, and it worked really nice... I want to make a change to that. i got to change all that work. Well, I could probably get away with not doing that. You're going you're gonna to try to get a, to do it a different way. Just because you didn't think ahead. And it, it's hard. And I'm not... It's, this is the kind of thing where... It sounds like I'm blaming people, but I'm not. I know that there's always a manager who's working for a person who sold something to someone and yeah. said, we'll have this done. And database design is, is not the most sexy of the things in the computer science. You know, you build a database, it's boring looking. Even the model, no matter how pretty the model you build, no one's going like, whoa, look at that model. I want to have a a version of that model. Mm. So we get stuck, and then they get these pretty screens, and you got to build the database to fit it. That leads to your next one, uh, I recall, which was tying UI design to the database structure. And, and you can say that vice versa, too, tying database structure to UI design. Hmm. User interfaces are really important. I mean, I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not sitting here saying that user interfaces should be built to, to look like a really normalized data set. They shouldn't be, necessarily. Because you may end up with 20 tables that represent that in one screen. That's fine. So that's what, that's what um, store procedures are for. That's what coding is for, working together and building that middle-tier architecture is for us to be able to present data in a way that's both usable to the client and usable for the database, reporting tools and things. So you don't end up with like modification anomalies, duplicate data, out-of-sync data, stuff that, that you know is very costly to fix. Yeah. Now, listen, one, again, one of the things that intrigues me with that, though, is, again, whenever I hear these discussions, it always still comes back to it's expensive to fix, it's hard to fix, it's, uh, you know, all those sort of words. And, and what I, I keep struggling with is I keep wondering, you know, if I look at what's occurred with, say, the, uh, the, the .NET programming languages and so on, the refactoring tools and things that are now coming with them, uh, are there to make it really easy to look at something and say, hang on, yeah, I know I did it that way, but I really now want to fix that. But the tools are helping you go through and fix all of the consequences of the fact that you're then changing that. And uh, one of the things I still find in, in the database area is we just don't have that sort of rich tool sets. I don't think the tool sets have kept up at all to the point where if I say, hey, I just want to you know, make this change to how things are done. It's a lot harder to to do that with the standard tool sets. I, I hope you don't you don't want me to disagree there. Okay. <laughs> our, our tool sets for SQL programming are. I don't want to bite the hands that feed me, right? That's right. Because <laughs> I already did that earlier. The people that actually <laughs> give me checks. I don't want to bite the other people that 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 support <laughs> me the and tools. give me stuff. Yeah. But the tools. They're getting there. Yeah. But you're right. 
and, and really that goes back to what I was talking about, about thinking ahead. Hmm. The, the structures are not as malleable as as a, as a user interface or really yeah. any other programming type thing. But there's one good thing, is that if you've designed it, if you've normalized it, and you've represented each kind of thing with a table, there's not a lot of change there that's going to occur. Yeah. You're not going to find out that, oh, that really wasn't an object. You know, that really wasn't an mm. entity in my database. You're more going to find pieces and parts that you need to add to there. Or you may find that you need to break up tables, but you, mm. you generally don't find that you have too many tables. Now, I think the sort of thing I was thinking of is imagine we say I've got a, a product and it's got like a product category, for example, and uh, that's that's yeah. a foreign key relationship to some product category table. Then all of a sudden people say, oh, well, actually, we've, we've now decided products can be in more than one category. And so what I really now want is uh, to remove that column. I want to build a linking table between the two and and so on and so on. And, and I'm just thinking that whenever I see that suggested to someone with a database, they kind of cringe a bit because they go, right, <laughs> you know, and... And, it's, and I think it's because they're thinking of the consequences of what's going to be involved in that. But I'm, I'm just thinking that simple refactoring like that, uh, it would be just nice if there was another layer of tools that made that sort of thing easier. I agree. <laughs> I yeah. want that. You want that, yeah. No, you're right. I mean, Indeed. even Erwin, which I use a lot, it, it has some tools that it does that, but I don't use them. You know, I, I generally do a mm. manual process. Yeah, it's just one sort of refactoring that occurs to me, but I, I just think there are many, many, many of those sort of things where we could describe standard things that we just endlessly end up changing. You know, uh, and, and there was nothing wrong with the original design, it's just maybe the, the business need has changed or something like that. I think when I, I look at the Agile uh, guys in the developer community, uh, the Agile end of town, they say, look, you know, uh, they, they deal more with the fact that they're saying, look, it's too hard to get the design right in the first place, and what's important is flexibility while you're building it and being able to adapt it. Uh, and there are, I must admit, there are clients I've worked with that now, no matter how much effort you can put into the design, these, the people you're working with are not... Uh, I had one boss describe it as spatially aware... <laughs> or something, but but basically, some people just can't see in their heads what the thing would be like, or or you know what the things are until they actually see the thing. You know, it's uh, I've got um, a partner, Wendy. She said, uh, um, you know, she was talking about uh, a, a guy, she, and she was sort of talking about the fact that you know when they're sort of talking about remodeling a house, you know, she could imagine what it would look like, but he could never do that until he actually saw it. And I think that's that's part of the problem is that you've got clients you're trying to deal with, and if you're trying to get them to spell out in incredible detail what the thing needs to be, sometimes that's really tough because they, they just can't do it. The thing is, you, you just have to you have to learn to ask the right questions, and mm. you have to listen because I find that most people that you have to do these things with, they know what they want as long as you know kind of how to ask the questions. I find most times I get in trouble is when I guess and I jump to conclusions and I tell them what they want and then they go, what must be right? 
He's yeah. a database guy. <laughs> I, I think more what I was thinking about is is I, I remember a client you um, a, l- a little while back I had one and and the sort of thing is you could say to them this may be some uh, reference number or something you'd say you know they have a concept of an account and then they have a buying group that the accounts live in and you say look is is it is it the same for every single member of the buying group and they would look at you and say yes 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 it is and then eventually. When you go to import the data, you find that it's different for one of the accounts. Hmm. And you say, we talked about this, you know, and you said it was, I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, except Kmart. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, right. <laughs> but the thing is, at the time, you know, it, it just did not dawn on them, and you've actually asked the right question. You know, they've thought about it, they've spelled out the detail, but in the end, they're wrong. And I don't know how to. I don't know any easy way to deal with that sort of thing. So, and I think again, tool support is what what I suspect is needed. Yeah, I know what you mean, and, and you're right. <laughs> but normalization is kind of interesting, and and in fact, that leads into into your third point. Oh yeah, regarding poorly designed tables, just the normalized. My design isn't bad; it's just the normalized, and and it's funny how people people use that as an excuse. What do you see as valid reasons for denormalizing? Performance. Mm-hmm. It, here's here's my here's my feelings. If you build a a proper interface between your tables and the user interface, there's no need for denormalization except for performance. Because any any denormalization you can do in a store procedure or a view, and the user needn't even know that you've done that. Yeah. So you might need to denormalize. For performance, maybe if you have a column that's calculated and it's calculated, it's used like a thousand times a minute and Mm. you only would need to calculate it once per month or something. Sure, you might want to keep around that sort of data, probably in some sort of index view or using whatever the the best mechanism to get it done without Mm. having to, to do it and redo it over each time. But if you built the, if you built the interface right, people won't know that you're denormalizing. And so the whole interface, the whole inserts and updates and deletes and, and edits should be done on in a, on a set that the user wants, that the user interface wants. Encapsulate those calls in such a way that the That's way right. you store the data is normalized. So mm-hmm. even if you present the, the, the user with data in, in format X, you store it in a normalized format so you don't end up with the problems that this having summary data, having um, multiple things related to, to the same thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, I must admit the, the, the main reasons that I ever find it's necessary are, are very much performance things. Um, probably the first one is the, the idea of having very, very wide tables that you know, that 99% of the time you pull two columns out of, you know, things like that. Um but again, you know, you could probably get around that with indexes and, you know, again, build an index that just contains those columns and some sort of covering index. The other one is really more to do with locking contention, and uh, that, that's where I, I must say, I always start to get really nervous if there is any sort of transactional value stored in the same table as... Uh, property type data you know so names and addresses and 
you know, customers' details, I'd be very... I start to get nervous when I see things like last sale dates or, you know, yeah, any of those sorts of things in that same table. And and probably uh, mostly because I, I get nervous about it in terms of locking. If, because uh, transactional stuff tends to get locked regularly and, uh, and uh, I just don't like seeing those sort of generic property tables and things locked much at all. Very true. Hmm. Very true. Um, and uh, which which goes, it's kind of the thing I was I was saying. You could put that in view and give hmm. the same and have the same data available without the user actually knowing. And what about um, your number two then? Um, design based on an old system. Hmm. This, of course, is things like uh, we we see it all the time with products that we buy. You'll get a, a, a product and, and you'll go into the database. You want to you want to get some information out, and what it turns out is it was an old D-based program, and they're and they're using it exactly like they were back 15, 20 years ago, in yeah. in the same same format. I have a, I have a perfect example that I won't share the name of, but <laughs> they actually take some of their tables and store it into the database as tables so when the user needs it they'll pull out the table materialize it as a as a file on their phone on the desktop and use it wow and then put it back in when they're done with it actually on a, a similar one I, I must admit I I find as people move forward using old data systems and, and move forward they often then don't take advantage of things that you can do with the newer systems you mean like like the new features of 2005 or that sort of thing, or do you mean? Yeah, it could could be one, but I mean even simple things like if you've come from an old system that could only have numbers to look things up, for example, and then they keep them instead of going to maybe something alphabetic that would work and be much easier to use. But because their coding and everything was done you know, back 20 years ago, um, they're they're not game to change anything like that. So everybody still ends up using an ugly system, even though the new system could do something different. It's actually better than what I was thinking. I was thinking, because hmm. I can understand why they don't use some of the newer features. Because yeah. some of these people are, are supporting, you know, SQL Server 4.2 in some of their products. Because yeah. it still works. You know, why, why upgrade? Or, or so I've heard. I, I don't know. I like yeah, to upgrade the second. Oh, look, that's out. very much... No, it is very much the case, actually. Uh, when I used to work as an ISV, uh, the, the last thing I wanted was newer versions all the time. Um, in fact, uh, we used to work with Progress years ago, and, uh, for example, if I built an application that ran on, you know, Progress 6.2, you know, L, <laughs> something or other, um, when, whenever a customer bought a Progress license to run my application on, I actually wanted them to have 6.2 L, yeah, whatever. I didn't want them to have 6.2 M or N or O or, you know, well, because I hadn't tested on that. See, I think if they're running a specific application and the application hasn't changed and that's the only app they run, then all you can do by changing it is potentially break it. Yeah, but then your client has to have a, a, a server running this version. Yep. And some of those earlier versions didn't support multiple instances, though. You have to have yeah. a server to run this package and a server to run that package. <laughs> and every you shouldn't need but one database server to run 
as many packages as, as you can handle hardware-wise. I think where the hassle comes in is that uh, where lots of little releases come out on a regular basis, I don't find it too scary with SQL Server because you're only talking about occasional service packs or uh, things like... Um, Potentially, maybe maybe a hot fix or something like that occasionally, but but where I find it really awkward is uh, things uh, more in the the front end side. Uh, for example, I had one um, a while back where uh, there was a new security update that Microsoft incorporated and sent down on Windows Update, and yet that what it means is that every single site breaks first thing that morning, and and that's pretty scary. For for an ISV, yeah, that is true. I I, I think that's the sort of thing that's 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 the stuff that my nightmares are made of. <laughs> yeah. the, the question there is though, what do you do about that? I mean, mm. you as an as an ISV, let tell them don't 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 have the add the packages until we test them. We, we I've seen that, and yeah, it it, it really hurts our your patching because yeah. they don't ever get it done within a reasonable amount of time. What, what, what seems like a reasonable amount of time anyways, which is immediately, right? Yeah. Because you don't want to wait. Oh, see, that's the problem I see is that when everybody finds the problem first thing in the morning, they all want it fixed by 10 o'clock too, no matter I, what it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with that. Unless, unless it's my bug, I'm per- perfectly with you there. <laughs> I, I think also what what makes it hard sometimes is in that particular case it, it, it took many many hours just to work out what had changed um, because often uh, the symptom you see is is not all that directly related to the name of the knowledge base article for example <laughs> so, so yeah and that's the trouble with you know I think the whole software engineering thing is with engineering as a discipline I, I just think you don't tend to change the underlying things without testing you know, it's uh, that makes me nervous. And it's amazing how complex Windows is, mm. or any operating system these days. Back, you know, back in mainframe times, there were. I think that when I was working, when I was in college, we had a mainframe, and they said at any time there was like ten thousand bugs in in system three hundred and sixty, I believe it was. Yeah. And that that operating system was so simple compared yeah. to Windows. It's not even funny. So, I think they used to say that in, in any piece of software big enough to be useful was never bug-free. It's true. <laughs> yeah, you, you can see how long it takes to get it. The closer to perfect you get, it takes mm. longer and longer and longer, and that doesn't work good for um, people's perception. Yeah. So, what, what about know. your number one issue then? What's your number one issue? Improper key structure. Mm-hmm. Um, the key here is I, I'm a big fan of surrogate keys. I really am. I, I use a surrogate key based on an identity on almost every table I, I build. Yep. But so often, when you, when you see people use identity keys, they don't put any other keys on their tables. Mm-hmm. And then it's ter- Then you end up with duplicates, bad performance for searching. Um, and users so will in your put. Case, in your case, you're talking about something like a record ID, effectively, which is an identity column, and you have that on every single table, and that is the primary key. Oh well, for example, if you had a customer table, 
you would have still a record ID or whatever as the primary key, but you may have a customer code or something as as another key. Yes. Hmm. As a, as a, I, I would always have some user key, but but now I, I don't think you should ever use the surrogate key as a, a value for the for the user, because then mm-hmm. then the user won't going to want to update it. Well, I don't yep. want that to be key number one. I want that to be key number key number six. Yeah. Well, you can't do that. You can't update it. Mm-hmm. So I I did. A lot of people suggest this. I'm. It's best to have a, 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 a very thin key, a very thin for your clustering key and such. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that structure. And I also like that every table follows a, a set going to be this single value that I use to go out and get a row when yeah. I, when I, in, in, in my programs. So I can, write pro, I can write my triggers, I can write store procedure generation code that all knows that, that, that fact. Yeah, and it knows what it knows what the column's called too. Yes, of course. The key is you have to have some real value that's unique. You can't just let this value be. So now the thing, the question I've got there is, which do you then use for foreign keys in your case? Always the surrogate key. Mm-hmm. The the identity value. Again, because it's so small, it's very fast, and it's. It works really nice because the name works out perfectly. You know that if you see the the customer ID in there, you you know that represents the customer. So it's 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 pretty self-describing. I don't you know suggest you have users working with that by hand, but sure. when they have to do when, when they have to do joins, obviously it's easier for them to join on customer key customer ID, they know that's part of the customer table, and you join to the customer table. So that's the number one. Actually, it's interesting you mention that, because I had Graham Simpson on the show um, a few weeks back, and uh, that was, I think, Graham's number one database design uh, modeling issue, uh, was uh, improper choice of primary key, was uh, was his feeling on that as well. So it's it's clearly a common problem. Uh, I also remember uh, Wally McClure uh, who's uh, an ASP.NET MVP, and I remember Wally uh, when we were at a software design review at Microsoft uh, last oh, a year or so back, and uh, Wally was saying it, one of the things he struggles with at client sites is he invariably gets there and there there are no primary keys at all on tables and so on, and uh, it, it's, it makes his life fairly awkward when he first starts working with it. So it clearly is a very common uh, sort of design issue. But Yeah, that, that, that's, that goes back to the leaving the data ex- integrity to external programs yeah you don't put a key you, you just expect that something's taking care of that and it <laughs> never it never seems to be perfect well so that brings us pretty much up to time i'm just sort of interested in just what else is happening in your world uh, upcoming you've got the book coming out soon hopefully in the end end of march and so, so that's called that was pro sql server 2005 database design and configuration and Oh, an optimization. Yeah, but we did some stuff with how would best practice with coding, some stuff with indexes. You know, the best way to optimize optimize your design, not so much optimize the system mm-hmm. once you've already built it. Yeah. I, I love that title. It's the longest title possible. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I think there's a it's a record. That's that's the main thing I have going on. That's that's been like the the thing I've been doing for the, the past year. You know, I hope to go back right. to Tech Ed again this year and, and and spend some time in the cabanas. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um and we might see you at the Pass Conference in Seattle later in the year. Definitely hope to be at Pass. Mm-hmm. And then I hope, and then I plan to spend a little time playing my GameCube because I've, I've, ah. I've had things sitting around just waiting for me to do them since last January. <laughs> I started the book last January. Yeah. It's, it's, so if you're if you're thinking of writing a book out there, it takes a long <laughs> time, and it's a lot. Yeah, of work. I think people underestimate. Uh, the time involved, and uh, I think the other thing they underestimate is, uh, or overestimate, is the dollars that'll come back. Uh, I know that uh, most people work out that they would be far better off flipping burgers somewhere than uh, trying to write a book. So, <laughs> I was just about to say that <laughs> mm. you're not going to get rich. I mean, it, it, it's fun, and I'll tell you what it does: it, it makes you learn the topic, yeah, well, because the first time you get you get bashed by a technical reviewer who says. You're stupid. You don't know that. That's terrible. <laughs> How did you do that? You go, oh no. You know, you realize, wow, I've got to learn this thing to death. It's it's just about like speaking, which I don't do a whole lot of. Because, well, hopefully, like I said, hopefully you're editing out some of the good bits here. But it's, it's not like not a speaking where you have to do it once. You know, you mm. got to do it and you do it and it takes time and you do it over and over. <laughs> well, listen, thank you, Lewis. It's been really great to talk to you, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you.